Chapter Eight of the Genial Idiot. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gonzales. The Genial Idiot, by John Kedrick Banks. Chapter Eight: Spring and Its Poetry. Well, Mister Idiot," said Mrs. Pedagog genially as he entered the breakfast room. What can I do for you this fine spring morning? Will I have to your coffee? I think I'd like a cup of boiled iron with two lumps of quinine and a spoonful of condensed nerve milk in it, replied the idiot wearily. Somehow or other, I have managed to mislay my spine this morning. A thrill mildness has taken the place of my backbone. Those tired feelings, eh? said Mr. Brief. Yippee, replied the idiot. Regular thing with me. Every year along the middle of April, I have to fasten a poke on my back with straps in order to stand up straight. And as for my knees, well, I never know where they are in the merry, merry springtime. I'm quite sure that if I didn't wear brass caps on them, my legs would bend backward. I wonder if this neighborhood is malarious. Not in the slightest degree, observed the doctor. This is the healthiest neighborhood in town. The trouble with you is that you have a swampy mind and... It is the miasmic oozing of your intellect that reduce you to the condition of physical flabbiness of which you complain. You might swallow the United States Steel Trust, and it wouldn't help you a bit, and ten thousand bottles of nerve milk, or any other tonic known to science, would be powerless to reach the seat of your disorder. What you need to stiffen you up is a pair of those armored trousers the Crusaders used to wear in the days of chivalry, to bolster up your legs, and a straight jacket to keep your back up. Thank you kindly, said the idiot. If you will give me a prescription, which I can have made up at your tailor's, I'll have it filled, unless you'll add to my ever-increasing obligation to you by lending me your own straight jacket. I promise to keep it straight, and return it the moment you feel one of your fits coming on. The doctor's response was merely a scornful gesture, and the idiot went on. Always seems a very queer thing to me that this season of the year should be so popular with everybody, he said. To me it's the mushiest of times. Mushy bones, mush for breakfast, fried, stewed, and boiled. The roads are mushy. Lovers thaw out and get mushier than ever. In the spring the blasts of winter all are stilled in solemn hush. In spring the young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of mush. In the spring. You ought to be ashamed of yourself to trifle so beautiful a poem, interrupted the bibliomaniac indignantly. Who's trifling with a beautiful poem? demanded the idiot. You are Loxley Hall, and you know it, retorted the bibliomaniac. Loxley nothing, said the idiot. What I was reciting is not from Loxley Hall at all. It's a little thing of my own that I wrote six years ago called Spring Unsprung. It may not contain much delicate sentiment, but it's got more sort of information in it, of a valuable kind, than you'll find in ten Loxley Hall or a dozen etiquette columns in the Ladies Away From Home magazine. It has saved a lot of people from pneumonia and other disorders of early spring. I'm quite certain, and the only person I've ever heard criticize it unfavorably was a doctor I know who said it spoiled his business. I should admire to hear it, said a poet. Can't you let us have it? Certainly, replied the idiot. It goes on like this. In the spring I'll take you to driving, take you driving, more dear dear. But I beg of you, be careful of this season of the year. It is true the birds are singing, singing sweetly all the notes. 
but you'll later find them wearing canton flannel around their throats. It is true the lark doth wobble. Spring is here, but bad like fire. All is warmth and all is genial. But I fear the lark's a liar. All is warm for fifteen minutes, that is true. But wait a while, and you'll find that April's weather has not ever changed its style. And beware of April's weather. It is pleasant for a spell. But, like little John's future, we can't always sometimes tell. Often modest little violets, peeping out from out the beds. The balmy morn. By night time have back coals within their heads, and the buttercup and daisy twinkling gaily on the lawn. Sing by night a different story from the carolings at dawn, and the blossoms of the morning, hailing spring with joyous frenzy, when the twilight falls upon them often droop with fluency. So, dear Maudie, when we're driving, put your linen duster on, and your lovely Easter bonnet, if you wish to, you may don. But be careful to have with you sundry garments warm and thick, woolen gloves, a muff, and e-tabs from the ice-box get the pick. There's no telling what may happen ere we've driven twenty miles. April flares with chill December, and is full of other wiles. Bring a parasol and mordy. It is good for tete-a-tete. At the same time, you had better also bring a hawkery skate. There's no telling from the noontide, with the sun shining bright. Just what kind of winter weather will be up against by night? Referring to the advice, said Mr. Brief, that's good. I don't think much of poetry. There is a lot more of it, said the idiot. But it escapes me at the moment. Four lines I do remember, however. Pin no fate to weather prophets. All their prophecies are fakes. Roulette wheels are plain and simple to the notions April takes. Keep your children in the nursery. Never mind it if they pout. And, above all, don't let your fairness take an evening out. Well, said the poet. If you're going to the poets for advice, I presume your rhymes are all right. But I don't think it is the mission of the poet to teach people common sense. That's the trouble with the whole tribe of poets, said the idiot. They think they are the license to do and say all sorts of things that other people can't do and say. In a way, I agree with you that poems shouldn't necessarily be treated on etiquette or a sequence of health hints, but it should avoid misleading its readers. Take that fellow who wrote. Sweet primrose time. When thou art here, I go by grassy ledges of long lane sign and pasture made, and moss entangled hedges. That's very lovely, and, as far as it goes, it is all right. There's no harm in doing what the poets so delicately suggest. But I think there should have been other chances for the protection of the reader like this. But have a care, oh, readers fair, to take your mackintoshes, and on your feet be sure to wear. A pair of staunch galoshes. Nor should you fail in seeking out the primrose, golden yellow, to have at hand somewhere about a competent umbrella. Thousands of people are inspired by lines like the original to go gallivanting all over the country in primrose time, to return at Tuby Eve with all the incipient symptoms of pneumonia. Then there's a case of Wordsworth. He was one of the loveliest of the nature poets, but He's eternally advising people to go out in the early spring and lie on the grass and were listening to cuckoos doing the cooking, watching the daffodils at the daily dill, and hearing the crocus cuss. And some sentimental reader out in New Jersey thinks that if Wordsworth could do that sort of thing, and live to be eight years old, 
There's no reason why he shouldn't do the same thing. What's the result? He lies in the grass for two hours and suffers from rheumatism for the next ten years. Tut, said the poet, I'm surprised at you. I can't blame Werther because of some new jerseyman makes a jackass of himself. Anyway, all writers should be responsible for the effect of what they write on the readers, said the idiot. When a poet of words with eminence, directly or indirectly, advises people to go out and lie on the grass in early spring, he owes it to the public to caution them that in some localities it is not a good thing to do. A rhyme footnote. This habit, by the way, is good, in climbing out of the mercy. But I would have it understood. It's risky in New Jersey. Would fulfill all the requirements of the special individual to whom I have referred, and would have shown that the poet himself was ever mindful of the welfare of his readers. The poet was apparently unconvinced, so the idiot continued. Mind you, old man, I think all this poetry is beautiful, he said, but you poets are too prone to confine your attention to the pleasant aspects of the season. Here, for instance, is a poet who ask, What are the dearest treasures of spring? and then goes on to name the cheapest as an answer to his question. The primrose, the daffodil, the rosy haze that veils the forest bare. The sparkle of myriad dimple sea, a kissing match between the sunbeams and the raindrops, reluctant hopes, the twitter of swallows on the wing, and all that sort of thing. You'd think spring was an iridescent dream of ecstatic things, but of the tight feeling that comes over you, the spine of jelly, the wobbling knee, the chills and fever that come from sniffing, the scented breath of dewy April's eve, the doctor's bills and such things like I never mention. It isn't fair. It's all right to tell about other things, but don't forget the drawbacks. If I were writing that poem, I'd have at least two stanzas like this. And other dearest treasures of spring, a daily draws of withering, blithering, squills. To cure my aching bones of darksome chills, and at the door my love physicians ring. The tender sneezes of the early day, the sudden drop of Mr. Mercury, the veering winds from south to north by east, and hunting flats to move to in the May. You see, that makes not only a more comprehensive picture, but does not mislead anybody into the belief that spring is all velvet, which it isn't by any means. Oh, bosh, cried the poet, very much nettled, as he rose from the table. I suppose if you had your way, you'd have all poetry submitted first to a censor. The way they do it plays in London. No, I wouldn't have a censor. He'd only increase taxes unnecessarily, said the idiot, folding up his napkin and authorizing to leave. I just let the board of help pass on them. It isn't a question of morals so much as of sanitation. End of chapter 8 Recording by Pilgonzales in Cavita, Philippines